It is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, July the 10th, 2012. It's been a hell of a week, mayhem-wise. The list of disasters and tragic human sufferings, <laughs> beyond belief, most of us turn away and say, oh, that's just more blood under the bridge, turn off the lights and go to sleep. My mother loved that old song, yes. No more money in the bank. No more children left to spank. Let's turn off the lights and go to sleep. I seem to remember uh, that time long ago when... Well, actually, in in those days, you know, old age, it seemed to me, was a kind of gentle giving up or collapsing. I, I'm not sure... Uh, what is it? Um, when I looked at it from the point of view of a very young person, it, it it looked very pleasant. Now that I am crashing, I find it isn't the same. It isn't what I expected at all. Uh, I thought, you know, it was walking on the beach and all that stuff about contemplative resignation and reflection and wallowing in wisdom. Not like that, folks, for me, any quiet or peace or uh, reflection comes when, uh, when there's nothing happening, you know, when the madness is just confined to media, when I can be alone with my radio, right, just, just, uh, just hear everything secondhand, no, no need to respond, just, uh, you just hear it floating across the room from television, the radio, great clots of blood coming out of the radio this morning. <laughs> I I usually escape to television sometime around 3 a.m., right? Right, 3 o'clock in the morning always. True dark night of the soul, said Fitzgerald. It's always 3 o'clock in the morning, day after day after day. Last night, I just wept over the movie The History Boys. Now, that, it's a film, and it's from a play by Alan Bennett, very famous play, won all the awards, The History Boys, British angst, wringing hands about the desperate state of liberal education, Western culture in crisis, chaos, hit the wall, Nobody wants to read anything, it seems. They just say, well, Professor, give us the gist. 
Um, the History Boys is the sort of story that <laughs> reduces me personally to maudlin tears because it is about the teachers. Uh, being a uh, purged school teacher myself, I, uh, I remember the feeling of hopelessness, helplessness. Um, some of us had this romantic notion that we would reach a new generation and as one of the main characters, the pitiful central character in the movie, in the play says it, he says, pass it on, pass it on. We always think, you know, it's, uh, yeah, uh, keeper of the flame, we're passing on to the torch. Ha <laughs> ha, talk about delusions. Well, illusion. Um, it's still a real illusion for a lot of people. Absurd, but uh, what else have we got? Uh, the fact is, as one of the characters in the film says, history's just one thing after another. Or the same thing over and over, depending on who you believe. Um, the most pragmatic character in the film... Uh, tells us that, uh, you know, there isn't any cause and effect. I, I like him. Uh, he was Rudge, right? He's the tough little guy. He's not a poet at all. He's an athletic. He wants to get an athletic scholarship. Uh, he knows that academic achievement is just one more form of uh, grandiosity, right? Primate grandiosity. All is vanity. Uh, he says at one point, he says, well, it's not like, you know, a win. You know, it isn't like winning a match. He's uh, into sports, something something tangible. True enough. Um, I still identify with the liberal bleeding hearts in that movie. Uh, they seem to believe that literature is all about love. Um, they sneer at the... Um, the nonsense, you know, the, the headmaster is always talking about the love of language and words, words, words. Uh, they know that, for the most part, they're certainly losers in the game of love, so they've got to have something to put in its place. Uh, last week, uh, at this time, I talked about love and Thomas Jefferson. I felt it was very important to do so because it was the 4th of July and uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, was, well, not if not responsible for the Declaration of Independence, he was certainly uh, mm, the editor, the, uh, the most pungent of the writers of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he declared, as you remember that we have the right to the pursuit of happiness, meaning love, of course, boys and girls. Uh, the um, original phrase, or the, the uh, phrase that was in the first draft, was the pursuit of life, liberty, and property. You know, that was the, the, uh, the way they started out, but Thomas Jefferson... Uh, took out property and he said that he had the right or that we have the right to the pursuit of happiness. And of course, his pursuit was the pursuit of his property, Sally Hemings, but I'm skipping. Uh, he had the idea that life was for living. 
He certainly spent his uh, fortunes on wine and women. Uh, uh, they were at the top of his list. Um, all his precious things. He died penniless and um, bankrupt. I remember, uh, well, his passionate companions were his his wife, his first wife. Uh, he was not legally married to Sally Hemings. I, I'm not sure. I made that clear last week. Several people asked me. Uh, she she was his mistress, Sally. His legal wife, Martha Wales, um, died when Thomas Jefferson was 40. Then her half-sister, the captive, uh, the legal slave, Sally Hemings, uh, became his lifetime companion. He, um, he and Sally were an item for 38 years until Thomas Jefferson died in his 80s. He died on the 4th of July, yes, 1826, same day that John Adams died. Abigail uh, Adams, of course, was the uh, lifetime love of John Adams, all very much above board, a married couple in the best, uh, the best uh, proper way. Uh, Abigail, of course, was completely anti-slavery and she certainly did not know until very late uh, that Thomas Jefferson uh, was, what is it, um, the well, that he had a paramour. Uh, uh, who knows if she believed it. There was a falling out between Adams and Jefferson. They made up in their old, old age. Uh, but the subject of Thomas Jefferson's long, long love affair with the woman who was his property is still a problem for many people, certainly for a lot of historians and scholars. I think that what is significant, what matters to us in our time, is that we are beginning to accept the fact that our nation's founding fathers were human and that history is all about context uh, and that race and color are the tragic tale of, what is it, uh, these United States. It's all about our greed, our inhumanity, and in this case, as in so many cases, there is a gender inequity that endures up to this day. Well, it's everywhere. Uh, whether or not it's settled, <laughs> Barbara Jordan, I think, is my favorite on that subject. She's not kind to um, the men there are also some other Texas congresswomen of color who uh, are advocates for African-American women. This struggle goes on and on and on. Uh, I have been in the habit of saying that uh, gender trumps race, but let's face it, uh, I think it's all, it's all of a, it's all one package. My particular axe to grind is the fact that so many people don't seem to be able to distinguish between race and color. That's a problem here in the United States. In South Africa, they have various categories. But now that we have moved into the 21st century and we know that, uh, you know, biological race is an illusion, but that color, color is still uh, an issue uh Du Bois told us that um, 
the color line would be the problem of the 20th century. There is a hierarchy of color. It was a, a simple way of figuring out who who was available to be sold, right? <laughs> it's all about the money, folks. Uh, I have two books with me today, the ones that I had last week. Uh, there's the big, heavy reference book for scholars, and then there is a book of fiction called Sally Hemings, which makes me want to go back and teach high school. Uh, it's written by Barbara Chase Rimbaud. Last name is C-H-A-S-E hyphen R-I-B-O-U-D. It's called Sally Hemings. It was written in the 80s. There was much, much fuss. It was before the DA, DNA, the uh, evidence was in proving that Sally Hemings' descendants are uh, uh, related to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, now, the book, the book of fiction, it doesn't have any out-and-out fibs. Out, uh, I mean, it doesn't say Thomas Jefferson was the king of Spain or something. It just, uh, it just fantasizes a little bit. There's one scene when Sally Hemings visits the Washington the White House, when, of course, we know that never happened. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, after, uh, well, during his his uh, sojourns in the White House, his daughter Martha became his uh, social social um, wife, I guess you would call it. Uh, first thing I want to do, I want to go to the very back of the book, uh, Sally Hemings, and just for, you know, just for respectability's sake, uh, she thanks, the author thanks Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, who was the original editor of this book. Uh, she writes, I would like to acknowledge with tenderness and friendship Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, who was the original editor on this book. She acquired it for Viking Publishers in 1978. Her hospitality and her ironclad determination that I should write this book, uh, our conversations on love, on power, sacrifice, and on the presidency were both morally and intellectually essential to my taking on in a first novel, The First American. I think it is important that... Uh, one of our first ladies gave this book her blessing and was the original editor. Um, at the back of this book of fiction, this story, uh, it's a rather romantic novel about Sally's lifelong love affair with Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and she mentions so many other writers. Uh, let me just mention one. She says... Well, she she acknowledges a 19th century novel published in England in 1853. It was called Clotel, or The President's Daughter. Uh, that would be Harriet. There is another uh, fictional novel uh, about Harriet. Mm-hmm. She left Monticello, uh and went to live in the great world. Uh, now, the book 
Clotel or the president's daughter was written by a runaway slave. His name was William Wells Brown. He can be considered the father of the African-American novel, according to this writer. Uh, she says she was touched to the quick by the recognition of cadences, themes, and wellsprings of feeling that are the roots of African-American writing. And that goes on. There are any number of, um, well, I would call them attempts at writing uh is it stories? I'm waiting for a play, as I keep saying. My favorite, my favorite um, theme will be the way the women worked together. Thomas Jefferson was gone a lot, you know. He was off in Washington being the president. I want to know how Sally Hemings raised her children. She had, uh, well, there were seven children born. I believe four survived well let's see so many so many different ways of looking at it if if uh, well the ones who what do they call it strolled or <laughs> walked off uh most of them entered the so-called white line um uh they crossed that line and went north uh let me see uh let me jump here to to the section uh, at the end, at the very, very end. I think now the, the author is very unkind. Well, not, I don't know. We don't just don't know, do we? It's fiction. She's allowed to do this. She's a little hard on Martha Jefferson Randolph, which, uh, makes sense. Uh, hmm. Here's Sally looking at, uh, Martha Jefferson after Thomas Jefferson had died, penniless, bankrupt, creditors sounding him to his very last breath, she says. Uh, okay, the plantation is up for sale and um, most of the slaves will go to the auction block, she says. Uh, age has marked Martha's face and she says, my mistress, had her life been so much different from mine? or as happy for that matter, slave or free, white or black. Women were women. They were indentured to husbands, fathers, brothers, children, in sickness and in health, in death and life. They were indentured, well, pain and pregnancy, work, exhaustion, grinding, solitude, and waiting, God above all, waiting. It was all in Martha's face. Well, in this scene, Martha has to tell Sally that she is free, and Sally says that she, <laughs> she Martha, has no right to free her, that she is free. Uh, there's a lot of argument about that in some accounts. Um, well, uh, the son, Madison, says that it was agreed before they came back to Monticello from Paris when Sally was very, very young, that she would be free, more or less, and certainly that her children would be freed at uh, when they came of age. Uh, anyway, uh, Jefferson was not in the habit of freeing women. The most interesting woman... Uh, for me, would be Sally's mother, Elizabeth. 
the uh, she was the mistress of Monticello, uh, pretty much. Uh, and Sally, uh, who was not particularly, doesn't seem to have been a, a very forceful or overbearing person, uh, was basically in charge of <laughs> Thomas Jefferson's linens and, and uh, uh, yes, the keeper of the wardrobe. Uh, let me skip to the chapter on Monticello. There's so much here. Last night I, I marked, I marked uh, 18 passages of this book. If you... Uh, are interested, remember, the book is just Sally Hemings by Barbara Chase Ribot. You can go find it and read it. And if you have a, uh, a teenage daughter, I think it would be a wonderful book for book report for high school. Uh, let's see. At the heading of this chapter on Monticello, 1803, there is a passage from Friedrich Engels. The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State, 1884, he writes, Familia did not originally signify the calm, posit ideal of sentimentality and domestic strife that it does in the present-day Philistine mind. Among the Romans, it did not even apply in the beginning to the leading couple and its children, but to the slaves alone. Famulus, F-A-M-U-L-U-S. Famulus means domestic slave, and familia is the aggregate number of slaves belonging to one man. The expression familia was invented by the Romans in order to designate a new social organism the head of which had a wife, children, and a number of slaves under his paternal authority, and according to Roman law, the right of life and death over all of them. When Jefferson died, let's see, there's 93 slaves for sale. Now, uh, I think I told you last week, it's all so complicated, the uh, the genealogy, the family tree, uh, Sally Hemings was the half-sister of Thomas Jefferson's uh, so-called white, in quotes, white wife, Martha Wales. Martha Wales' father, John Wales, uh, was the father of Sally Hemings. He, uh, for many years, uh, kept, let's call her as concubine, Elizabeth Hemings, the mother of Sally Hemings. Both Sally's mother and grandmother uh, were, uh, I guess we have to use the word concubine, the uh, uh, or common law wives of the slave masters. Uh, when John Wales died, oh gosh, I think it was a hundred and some odd slaves uh, came from his plantation and arrived at Monticello, and Thomas Jefferson was then... Uh, their master. Uh, let's see. Let me read you just a little little snippet of what Thomas Jefferson had to say about the relationship between slave and master. In Notes on the State of Virginia in 1790, Thomas Jefferson writes, The whole commerce between master and slave is a perpetual exercise of the most boisterous passions 
the most unremitting despotism on the one part and degrading submissions on the other. Our children see this. They learn to imitate it, for man is an imitative animal. This quality is the germ of all education in him. From his cradle to his grave, he is learning to do what he sees others do. If a parent could find no motive either in his uh, philanthropy or his self-love for restraining the intemperance of passion towards his slave, it should always be a sufficient one that his child is present. That's pretty funny because, of course, in many cases, um, <laughs> the, the passion would be directed toward his own child. Thomas Jefferson was not, well, the reports are that he was not all that intimate with his, um, with Sally's children. Uh, he, what is it? He did free them. She lived after his death with her two sons, Eston and Madison. Thomas Jefferson, uh, let's see, he was interested in Eston because of the music. He left that son the pianoforte and Madison, who was a fiddler, right? He, he was interested in their musicianship. Uh, it's so interesting to study all this um as I said, I would just love to have a play about the interaction of um, Jefferson's grandchildren, the children of his daughter Martha, and Sally's children. They would have been contemporaries. Uh, and, of course, all of the women were there together trying to run the home and cope with all of the problems. Uh, I, I don't know. In this book, it, it's not... It's not dated exactly, but of course the the references to the 17th and 18th century are. But uh, yeah, they use the words words like octoroon, quadroon, mulatto. I guess would be half and half um, quadroon, the quarter, octoroon, that kind of thing. Uh, wonderful, beautiful, romantic words for something that is very confusing. Uh, I think there's no question, but this was one of the great love affairs in American history. Uh, I don't know what we're to make of it, except that um, the love laws are changing and changing. And I think it would be splendid to really rewrite some of the history books to explain to students that Sally Hemings is the mother of the nation in many ways, certainly as much as Thomas Jefferson, his father of the nation, uh, the fact that, what is it, we don't really have her, what is it, her her um, her writings, any message, I think that tells us everything we need to know. Uh, there is a film called Jefferson in Paris, which I kind of like. There's a lot of stuff in... Uh, uh, Annette Gordon-Reed's book, my reference book about that film, about what the critics thought of it. Uh, check that one out. Annette Gordon-Reed's new book is all about the Hemings family. The one I have with me here today is called Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, An American Controversy. And uh, I'm, I don't have time to read you. I was going to read you some of the 
scurrilous tabloid writings just to prove to you that things were just as sordid in the 18th century. Uh, talk about calling somebody names. <laughs> of course, I think there's no question but what Sally Hemings probably did know what was being written about her. And I'm sure that Thomas Jefferson uh, did the right thing. He simply did not answer the accusations. Uh, and he did manage to be president. Uh, interesting how times have changed in that regard. 38 years and seven children. It doesn't seem to me there would have been much argument. But <laughs> this has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air next week at this same time till then go easy and if you can't go easy go as easy as you can Tango harmonica sensation Joe Powers joins Redwood Tango Trio in a special night to benefit Ashkenaz Music and Dance Community Center on Saturday, July 21st. The event includes a concert at 8 p.m., a dance lesson by Ashkenaz Tango teacher Sonia Riquette at 9 p.m., followed by a milonga tango dance party till 1 a.m. with live music and championship professional dance performances. Tickets are $15 in advance at www.ashkenaz.com or $18 at the door. Located at 1317 San Pablo Avenue in Berkeley. More info at www.intimateembracetango.com or 415-661-1852. And you're tuned to 94.1 FM, KP.